with you this morning. We have the privilege of opening God's word and being changed more into Christ's likeness through uh, his word and the power of the spirit. And so we are delighted that you are here with us this morning. This is kind of what we do every single time we gather. The, the songs prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's word and God's word goes forth in the power of his spirit and transforms lives. And so we are delighted that we get to do that work together. You know, we live in a time when we both promote and discourage uh, majority thinking, right? Every presidential election, whichever side wins, thinks the other side is crazy and will often say, well, the majority got it wrong. We all oftentimes also quickly remember the, that, that famous photo, this, this defiance uh, of Hitler photo, when, when all the, the people are, are saluting Hitler, except for the one gentleman named August Landmesser, who refused to enact the Nazi salute before Hitler. And then we see uh, our dreams uh, of becoming that next guy in our current cultural context, and we want to be that guy who stands up for what is right, even while everyone else gets it wrong. In general, there's a lot of wisdom in multiple people making decisions, not just one person. But what if they do get it wrong? And Jesus, in our passage this morning, goes before Pilate, goes before the crowd, and their assessment of Jesus is wrong. And so the question for this morning for us is, will we be part of the crowd who gets Jesus wrong, or will we get Jesus right? Will we treasure him or reject him? That's the question for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. We are beginning Mark chapter 15 as we are making our way through the Gospel, section by section. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. Inside your bulletin, is our scripture reading from earlier, is also our sermon passage. So everything I'm going to be talking about is going to be referenced right there. You're going to want to have that open in our time together. And we're in the part of the Gospel of Mark where, where the first three years of Jesus' life have been over about 10 chapters, and now the last week of Jesus' life is on a major slowdown in the last six chapters. And we are on Good Friday, as it's been traditionally known, where Jesus has been arrested. He's on his way to certain public death. And it is Friday morning, early morning, when Jesus goes before Pilate. And so we are at the very end of Jesus' public ministry and life. And we have a verse of the series that we've been working on uh, that helps us in our study of the Gospel of Mark. That should be Mark 14, verses 24 to 25. That should be on our screens. Let's say that together. Let's remind one another of what Jesus said at the Last Supper. And here's what he said. Let's say it together. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen for that reality. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Lord, we cannot 
respond in faith apart from your spirit at work in our lives. And so we need your spirit to attend to your word this morning for this to be anything but a historical exercise, which we don't want it to be. We want it to be life transforming. We want it to give direction for our lives. And so Lord, would you by your spirit work in us in every way that we need? And we trust that you do. Uh, Lord, we know that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So Lord, would you have your way with our hearts today? Would you have your way with our lives? Would your word take place in our hearts exactly as you have it to do today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you a roadmap of where we're going today. We're doing 20 verses, and, and here is, I think, the big idea of Mark in Mark 15, verses one to 20. Here's what we want you to walk away with this morning. Treasure Jesus, our King, who was condemned in God's plan so that we would be set free. Treasure Jesus, our King, who was condemned in God's plan so that we would be set free. And so we're going to look at how the King is accused. We're going to look at a son who is released and how then the king is shamed and mocked. So let me read our passage kind of section by section, and we'll keep talking about it. Here's uh, uh, Mark 15, verses 1 to 5. Here, here's what Mark writes. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You know, the idea of there being no rest for the wicked is never truer than that fateful night on Thursday night. Jesus had already been before the Sanhedrin council, uh, but the scriptures tell us that the Sanhedrin council did not have jurisdiction over capital punishment. They needed the power of Rome. And so Pilate was crucial in the link in securing Jesus' execution. The Sanhedrin believed Jesus made himself equal to God, which in their eyes is blasphemy. And so the whole council met early Friday morning and decided that Jesus needed to be delivered over to Pilate. They had been plotting against Jesus, and now it was time to put the nail in the coffin. Mark was writing to an audience probably in Rome during the time of Nero, and so he, we, we see that he's just very factual about Pilate. And so we in our day often miss on who Pilate actually was. So let me give you a little bit of background on who Pilate is that Jesus is going before. Okay, Pontius Pilate was the fifth Roman governor in Palestine. He had the longest reign of, of any of those governors. He reigned from 26 AD to 37 AD. Uh, and and he, he was known to control um, the Jews through brute force. And so during his governorship, 
Pilate changed uh, some of the military laws and, and decided to bring in statues of people and place them around the city uh, of, of, of famous Romans. Well, the problem with that is that it violated the Jewish ban on images in the city. And he knew that. And so the offended Jews rioted at Pilate's house for five days. And he responded in violence until uh, those who were rioting showed their necks to him and saying, you can cut our necks off, but we will not violate our law. And so when Pilate saw that that had happened, he relented and, and removed the images from the city. But then, you know, Pilate then took money from the Jewish temple to build a 23-mile aqueduct to Jerusalem. And so then the Jews protested the use of temple money for public works. And so Pilate responded in his normal Pilate ways by killing a whole bunch of them. And so Pilate was not an innocent guy. And then we hear about this third thing that happens in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13, that there are these Galileans who brought offerings to Jerusalem. And Pilate, in the Pilate fashion that he was, decided to kill them and still let them use their sacrifices, but just mix their own blood with the blood of the animals for the temple sacrifices. And then even after this episode with Jesus, there was then later a, a Samaritan uprising that Pilate again violently stopped, which then did eventually lead to his removal from office. So this is the Pilate whom Jesus is brought before. And so you can feel the, the irony of this man deciding Jesus' fate. The Sanhedrin council were supposed to know the Old Testament, live out the kingdom of God, and yet they weren't doing justice. They sent him to Pilate. Well, friends, we cannot build the kingdom of God using the devil's tools. And so as much as Pilate didn't like Jewish customs, Pilate was not interested in religious charges, it had to rise above religious charges. So he asked Jesus the only question of interest to him as the representative of Rome. And that's what we see in verse 4. We see the evidence of that in Pilate's question. He says, are you king of the Jews? Uh, remember, uh, they were not a free people. They were under Roman rule. So there was no king but Caesar. And so by Jesus calling himself king... He would be then fighting against Rome for power, and then Rome could step in. And so the claim to be the Messiah was not a crime in Rome, but when it translated into the political equivalent of king of the Jews, it became material concern for the governor to deal with. Jesus' response, you say that I am, which is a little bit of a frustrating answer, Usually, someone who wants to become a martyr will go down screaming his cause. Jesus had accepted the charge before the Sanhedrin. Now he accepted the charge before the governor of Rome. And Jesus was not denying his kingship. It's a different type of reign, right? It's a king over all the earth. Remember the prophecy about Jesus that, that we often read at Christmas time? Uh, before Jesus was born in Isaiah 9? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Jesus, as the king of the Jews, was far bigger than what Pilate realized. It wasn't the only charge against Jesus. The chief priest made many other accusations against him. And even further, Pilate pressed Jesus. He, he said, see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus didn't respond. And it amazed Pilate. See, for Jesus not to respond, it, it was not a silence of defeat, but a silence of surrender to God's perfect will. Can you imagine the level of trust of the Father for Jesus to be subjected to all of this and yet allowed it to happen? Can you imagine your minds for a moment the level of submitting to the Father's plan that Jesus didn't shrink back, even for a moment? Brothers and sisters, what a Savior we have. What a King for us to follow. Think of that, that song, Man of Sorrows. I, I think we're going to actually sing it next week. It says this, Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, Hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Right? This follows Isaiah's foretelling of Jesus so well in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, we need to treasure Jesus as the innocent Savior who stood accused before a guilty judge. Jesus was accused and mocked and condemned to be crucified in part of the perfect plan of God to rescue us. So we should treasure our king. We should treasure Jesus who was condemned in God's plan so that we would be set free. Well, Mark continues to write, and, and we see what happens when Jesus is before Pilate. Let's look at verses 6 through 15 together, a, a son who's released. And Mark writes this. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? 
What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Remember, this is the time of the Passover. And Pilate would release a prisoner as a goodwill gesture. And there were people who were there looking to Pilate to do that very thing. At least in verse 8, it says that. And so one of those prisoners was someone called Barabbas. He was part of the insurrection, kind of like a political freedom fighter. And so Barabbas ended up killing a guy during an uprising in Rome. And so Pilate saw this as an opportunity to get out of this awkward situation with Jesus. Pilate offered to release the king of the Jews. This wasn't the first political game of Pilate. He recognized the scene for what it was. Pilate saw that Jesus was not guilty of something deserving death. It was out of jealousy from the chief priests. It says so in verse 10. For he received that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. In fact, it even seems as though half the crowd had no interest in Jesus at all. They were there to have the governor release a well-known freedom fighter, not so much to be even against Jesus. In fact, each group there had their own desires for the situation, didn't they? The chief priests had no interest in Barabbas. They intended to use Barabbas as part of their scheme to secure Jesus' condemnation. And Pilate wanted to use amnesty for a prisoner as a way to escape having to condemn Jesus. The, the crowd saw it as a chance of getting their hero back. The chief priests saw it as a chance of getting a death sentence for Jesus. And so the chief priests in verse 11 stirred up the crowd to shout that they wanted Barabbas. And this is a scene that should make us pause as we even think about politics in our own land. Do we want political freedom more than a savior? They are not the same thing. We live in a politically charged time that any topic of conversation seems to be a polarizing political opinion. And we either can't believe that people are getting vaccines or we can't imagine people not getting the vaccine and we often wonder which news source we can even listen to. So often that leads to us to want political freedom from lies and deceit and foolishness. And it is an honor to be able to vote for people that we can put into political office. Uh, But I'm afraid that we often put more hope in a political freedom fighter than we do in Jesus, our Redeemer. Our greatest hope for America is not the right people in office, but repentant hearts changed by the gospel of Jesus. And so we need to be careful that we are not wanting Barabbas instead of Jesus the Son of God, when we want political freedom more than a gospel-transformed culture. Barabbas was a freedom fighter, but not Jesus. And people did not really want, or people really did want Barabbas. And so between the Prince of Peace and this insurrectionist, we too often want the insurrectionist. So Christian, we must set aside political desires over gospel impact. 
So asking them what to do with Jesus, the crowd shouted in verse 13, crucify him. Crucifixion, as you all probably know, was a cruel and lingering death that was reserved for slaves and rebels and was used freely in Palestine. It's one thing to release someone who is evil. It's another thing entirely to kill someone who's innocent. Right? If you, if you remember the book of Job, Job was this extremely wealthy guy and he lost everything, not because of sin, but to show the greatness of God by Job's faithfulness to God. And even then, he felt like it was unjust. Job even said in chapter 19, Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And it's even worse for Jesus. Because Jesus was not a fallen human. He was the Son of God, sent from heaven, down to earth, to rescue lost sinners. And he had never done anything wrong. The crowd was begging for a known killer over Jesus. Uh, the, the name Barabbas in verse 7, ironically, means son of the father. In fact, Matthew 27 adds that Barabbas's given name was Jesus. So Pilate basically was asking, which Jesus do you want, the son of the father or the would-be Messiah? And so Mark, therefore, makes the distinction between Barabbas and the true son of the father, Jesus the Messiah. Right? Because only an unjust official would put to death a harmless religious leader. And even Pilate realized the charges were false. Pilate didn't think Jesus should be crucified. He said in verse 14, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Can we just imagine for a moment, if you were Barabbas, right, you're in prison, you know you're guilty, you know that you're going to be executed the next day, and so the night before you go to the cross, you, you've mentally prepared for this. I don't think he got a last meal or anything like that. Morning comes, and then you're told that you're released. What? I'm free? Who's here? Jesus of Nazareth? He, he's arrested? He's taking my place instead? He's going to my cross? I don't have to? A convicted murderer is set free. And in his place, the innocent, true son of the father is condemned to death. The prisoner exchange here is such a great reflection of the substitutionary understanding of Jesus's atonement for us, right? That's why we, we, that's what we think about when we read Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or, or 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We who are guilty without question are set free by Jesus going to the cross 
for us. And so we are called to treasure him. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a, a Christian. Uh, you have to know that, that this is the red hot center of what makes every single Christian live for the kingdom of God beyond ourselves. What makes Christians willing to serve others so much is because of exactly what Jesus did, even for Barabbas. But he didn't only do it for Barabbas, he did it for us too. So often what amazes me is that when I, I, I meet people who are familiar with church or familiar with Christianity, but they don't know the most important part of why Christians exist. We exist because Jesus took our penalty for us by laying down his life so that by faith we would be forgiven for all of our debt, for all of our sin. And so, so if you're not a Christian here this morning, make sure that if you reject Jesus, you make sure you're doing so informed by what you're rejecting. You're rejecting the guy who predicted his own death, who was innocent his entire life, who went to the cross anyway and died publicly and was buried and he was trapped inside a tomb with a stone covering the entrance and three days later he rose from the dead and he appeared to over 500 people. He ascended into heaven and he promises to come back for everyone who would turn, and put, turn from their sin and place their faith in him. All of what Jesus offers can be yours easily and simply through turning away from your rebellion against God and placing your trust in Jesus. That he died for you, that he rose on the third day from the dead and offers eternal life with him. So won't you come to trust Jesus today? If that's something you want to talk more about, find me after the service. I'd love to to meet with you and speak to you about that. See, Pilate didn't treasure Jesus enough to acquit him. Pilate did not tr value Jesus enough to do what was right. Pilate valued the pleasing the voice of the crowd more than Jesus. And so no matter what our position is in life, CEO, trash collector, fast food worker, banker, teacher, we must all make a value claim of Jesus. Pilate did, everyone in the crowd did, the Jewish leaders did, and our value of Jesus is displayed in our lives. And so if you know what is right, but worry more about what others will think, friends, see that making a stand with Jesus should be higher priorities. If you wish to satisfy the crowd, you can be sure you are compromising your values. Pilate valued Jesus enough to condemn him to be crucified. Pilate, who began seeking amnesty for Jesus, ended up saving his own skin. But don't forget what Mark says in verse 15. He delivered him to be crucified. Friends, what was done from wickedness was still done by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, as Acts 2.23 says. 
None of what has happened with Pilate is outside of what God's plan had been from the beginning. And so we can treasure Jesus, our King, who was condemned in God's plan so that we would be set free. Let's look at this final section, verses 16 through 20 of Mark 15. Here's where we pick up. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led led him out to crucify him. Well, friends, here we see the king is mocked and shamed. Barabbas was released to go free And Jesus was led back inside the palace. The cruel mockery of the high priest's court was then repeated by Pilate's soldiers here. The Gospel of Mark's uh, emphasis on the crucifixion, interestingly enough, doesn't fall on the brutality of the crucifixion, although it certainly could. But instead, the Gospel of Mark's emphasis on Jesus' crucifixion is on the shame and mockery that Jesus is subjected to. Shame and mockery when Jesus was being betrayed by Judas. Shame and mockery before the Sanhedrin council. Shame and mockery inside the palace. And soon, shame and mockery even while Jesus hung on the cross. A scarlet cloak and a rough crown made from thorn bushes that grew everywhere in Palestine were enough to mock a king. The soldiers, hail king, was something that they might have said to Herod or even to Caesar himself, but it was all mockery towards Jesus. The king was shamed and mocked. The soldiers mocked Jesus, they assaulted Jesus, they beat Jesus, they spit on Jesus, and when it seemed like it wouldn't end, they finally led him out to crucify him. Here, the the, the power of heaven faced the power of Rome. But remember, it's not about winning now. It wasn't about Jesus being vindicated right then. Jesus was proven right three days after his death in his resurrection from the dead, not while he was on trial. So even while we look at the injustice from Pilate, how easy it is for us to feel the sting of injustice in our own lives, right? So when you feel the injustice of this life, friends, make a beeline in your mind to Jesus. This past soccer season was pretty hard for me. I had two teams that were in a growing season. I was coaching teams that were so clearly unmatched to any other team. It was just really bad. Uh, I don't play to lose. I don't coach to lose. And it seemed like all we did was lose. I actually told Jennifer 
I was angry in my heart because of how unfairly matched the teams were this year. For one game, uh, it was going to be a blowout. There was no question. The other team did something illegal that resulted in another goal against my team. And I got upset at the ref. And I said, man, it's not even a close game. Can you at least let us lose by obeying the rules? Otherwise, why are you even here? By the way, I think every kids of sport is where every parent feels injustice. Okay? I don't think I'm alone. I just indicted all of you. I also think there are lots of ways where people cannot catch a break when life is unfair and you just want to set fire to Walmart and watch it burn to ground or you just want to give up. Because oftentimes injustice leads to despair that leads to hopelessness that leads to anger and murder. And so when you feel injustice in this life, remember Jesus who has suffered in the very same way as you, but even worse, and did not sin. Remember, when we choose to respond to a situation, we are responding in a way that already reveals what is inside of our hearts. And so we need to look at Jesus not responding in hate, though he was being mistreated. Right, so the example I like to give is if you are holding a coffee cup and, and you swirl it around and coffee spills out of it, I like to ask, well, why did coffee come out? And, and the right answer is not because I twirled it around, it's because the coffee was what was inside the cup. If there was water inside the cup and I swirled it around, then water would come out. And, and so if coffee is coming out of the cup, it's because that's what was inside of the cup. And so in this life where nothing is perfect, we have situations that give us opportunity for our hearts to respond of what is already going on inside there. I responded to the ref in the soccer game in the way that I did because of what was already brewing inside my heart. And so it is with every single situation of our lives. No one makes you respond the way that you do. No, we respond because of what's inside our hearts. Uh, That's what Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so friends, when we respond to injustice by trying to justify ourselves, it's because that's already been what's brewing inside our hearts. And we see that we don't have to do that. In fact, that's what the scripture reading was all about this morning in, in Romans chapter 12. Instead of repaying evil for evil, when our enemy is hungry, we give him something to eat. When he is thirsty, we give him something to drink. We don't seek vengeance for ourselves. God says he is just. Vengeance is his, not ours. And so when we feel injustice, whether it's at a kid's soccer game or you are overlooked for a promotion, or someone has broken into your house, or you can think of any number of arguments with a spouse, arguments with kids, arguments with neighbors, and you want to seek justice for yourself, friends, remember Jesus at the cross. Remember Jesus who, though there were many accusations from the chief priests, 
Jesus made no further answer. When injustice happens, remember God also promises a day when all injustices will come to an account to him, but not to us. That's why Isaiah 9 is so hopeful, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So even when injustice happens to you, we need to remember that God has even given us grace not to justify, uh, not justice in our own sins, and so therefore we can be like Jesus and entrust even every unjust situation to Jesus and not seek revenge, but live mercifully. When we look at what Jesus is going through here in our passage, it's okay to ask, could my sin really only be covered in this way? Was there really no other way to be saved? Was there really nothing else that would satisfy God? Friends, we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no payment for sin. And we know that the blood of animals does not take away our guilt. And so we face the wrath of an eternal God against our very sin. And so the answer is that there is no other way to be saved and oh, how thankful to Jesus that he willingly laid down his life. How somber and thankful we can be that Jesus, having loved us to the end, went through this for our sake. And so we can treasure Jesus, our King, who was condemned in God's plan so that we would be set free. The court was not just. Jesus, the innocent, was condemned as guilty. Barabbas, the guilty, was released. And this was the plan set out by God. This was the only way to rescue sinners. So let us treasure Jesus, our King, who according to God's plan was condemned who died on a cross and then rose from the grave, conquering death, defeating sin, defeating death, and promising new life for all who put their hope in him. Let's treasure him. Let's follow that king. Let us be numbered with that son of the father, the son, the Messiah, Jesus. Well, friends, we are called to be not only hearers of God's word, but doers of his word as well. And so let us respond this morning by, by not thinking that this was just a nice history lesson from the Bible, and then we walk out the doors and, and forget any of what was said. Let us now spend a few moments before God and saying, what does it look like for us to respond and treasure Jesus this week in our lives?
You're welcome to come and, and pray at the front. You're welcome to respond right where you are in your seats, but let us respond to God and then the band will, will lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent Jesus down to earth to step in our place so that we would not be condemned, but that we would be set free. Free from the penalty and, and power of our sin. Lord, we pray thanking you that you then lead us into the family of God, all because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his defeat of death. And so, Lord, we pray that we would treasure Jesus, the only king worth following, the only one who predicted his death, died of the gruesome death that he didn't deserve, and then defeated the grave and promises resurrected life for us. Lord, would that resurrected life not start at the end of our life, but even start today. May we be resolved to live in light of what Jesus has done. Lord, make us to be a people who follow him, not only in word, but in deed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.